Man, Bo did a phenomenal job last week. Uh, it's been a sermon that's been ministering to my heart all week. Uh, to remind you, last week we saw Jesus' first sign in the book of John, uh, and it was at a wedding feast. Looking forward to the day that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back for a wedding feast with his bride. Now today, uh, the action moves along, and we're going to see Jesus uh, go to the temple. So what I'm going to do is read John 2, 13 through 22. We'll pray, and then uh, getting into unpacking the text, seeing how it applies to our lives. God wrote this book, and it's been given to us. It's a treasure that makes us wise into salvation and the character and nature of who God is. Hear God's holy word. The Passover Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's holy word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. uh, None of us in the position of being over your word, but all needing to come under it. None of us in the position to bring you our righteous deeds, but in the position of needing righteousness that comes from outside of us. Not in the position of deserving grace from you, but being undeserving, who have our only hope. In the hope that you would show us grace. So I ask that you would do that. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you lift our eyes to see the Son of Man lifted up? For those coming in weary and heavy laden, would you take the burdens off of their backs? For those of us who have so crowded our hearts and our minds that we came into church even today just just in a fury and a daze, would you calm us? Would you drive out what doesn't belong? And would you make us who have turned to things other than you true worshipers of you? 
those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Show us the new temple, temple by which we come to God. Jesus, we need you. You're our only hope, but you are our sure hope. Pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Years ago, there was a young up-and-coming preacher, and he was a young pastor who did something pretty innovative and groundbreaking at the time. He taught on the Day of Atonement in a big church, and he told people, open, to, open up your Bibles to Leviticus 16, said, no, I'm not joking, and he went on to preach a sermon that uh, magazines would write about as groundbreaking. It was innovative. It was creative. And what he did is in the middle of the sermon, he had a man dressed completely like a high priest come and take the stage and stand next to him. And all the vestments, all the things that we could best discern what it would look like from the Old Testament, what a high priest would look like. And then he brought a live goat onto the stage. And he preached about the slaughtering of this goat the entire time. Intention was building in the room. Probably not a few people were wondering, is this guy going to do this here? And the climax of the sermon was he had the goat go away and the goat was never slaughtered and people raved about it. People said, oh, that was so powerful. Now, what happened after urban legend holds that inspired a bunch of young preachers who heard about this display of, Lee, of bringing a live goat onto the stage, and they sought these young preachers to emulate him. And so people all around the country were bringing live goats to the pulpit. Now there was a problem. We won't even talk about the fact that maybe you just shouldn't bring a live goat to a pulpit, but the problem was this. Uh, this man was preaching in a church that had an enormous budget. The stage production of this church was off the charts. It could compete with any concert hall in the world. And so they had a live goat that was trained with an animal trainer right there. They had thought through everything. These young preachers, uh, not so much. So as they were bringing up goats, who knows where they got them from, uh, they lacked some foresight. And so these animals, it's said, would do what animals do live, on stage, during the preaching of God's word. They would make noises. They would do the stuff that animals do while someone is trying to preach God's word. Now, you can imagine how this might distract, how this might crowd out the baying of a goat, the stuff that comes out of a goat during the preaching of God's holy word, how it would obstruct this holy act where we come to hear from God's word. Now, in our section of scripture today, Jesus comes to the holiest place of worship. And there, as he enters into the temple, he finds obstruction by a bunch of animals and money. And in his interaction with this obstruction, we see just how far God will go to do away with our false worship 
and to establish a way to be with him in true peace. This is the first of two temple cleansings in Jesus' ministry. The first John records for us here, and it takes place early on in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 12 of John 2 tells us that Jesus went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples to Capernaum and spent some days there after his wedding, after the wedding at Cana. And then after that, staying a few days, they come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as he's coming to the Passover, what we're going to see in verses 13 and 14 is that Jesus comes upon a defiled temple. Verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were, who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus, it says, goes up to Jerusalem. Now, geographically, I'm told and rely strictly on the facts of a map, uh, Jerusalem is south of Capernaum. But people always go up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason for this is a couple. One, it is at higher elevation than most other places. You know that if you've been there. But more than that, it's the place where the temple is. Jerusalem, particularly at Passover time, is the place to be in all of Israel. It's the high time of the year. Every able man who is able to go is commanded to uh, go to Jerusalem for a number of festivals, and Passover is one of those. Now, you remember Passover is the festival that celebrates the remembrance of God bringing his people out of the land of Egypt, where he sent a destroyer angel to strike down every firstborn son, but those who would paint the blood of a lamb on their doorposts would be passed over by that angel by virtue only of the blood of the lamb. And the Israelites were told, the Jews were told to celebrate this and remember this every year, to remember what God had done for them. So Jesus travels and he finally arrives and he's entering into the outer court of the Gentiles This is the first place you would go in the temple. It's the place where Gentile, that is non-Jew, God-fearers, would be able to enter in and worship God. God has always made provision for people other than Jews to be able to interact with him in a way. Though we obviously now have a more privileged and intimate relationship with him, his heart was always for the nations. And as Jesus enters into that outer court of the Gentiles, There's animals taking up all of the space. Oxen, sheep, and pigeons. People are changing money because you had to use specific coins in the temple. Uh, All the smells and all the extra stuff that goes along with livestock would be present there. And this brings Jesus into holy anger. He's going to make a whip. He's going to drive it all out. But before we talk about Jesus disinfecting the temple, we need to ask ourselves, we need to get clear on what's wrong that these people are doing. What's the problem going on here? And it's really threefold. 
The first and most obvious thing is this. It's where they're doing what they're doing. It's in the outer court of the Gentiles. Now, people were commanded to get animals for the sacrifice. So it's not wrong in itself to sell an animal. God commanded them to be able to acquire one. If you were traveling from a long distance, uh, it would be pretty inconvenient to drag a goat with you or a sheep or an oxen the entire way. So that's not an illegitimate trade, but it's taking place in the wrong spot. They're taking up the area where a Gentile God-fearer should be able to worship God. And they were crowding the holy place that belonged to God, that was meant to be extended out in mission to others. They were crowding it out with business affairs, with the necessities of life. Primarily, it seems, it's where they're doing what they're doing. But it's not just that. It's also, it's also how they're doing what they're doing. These money changers it's written at the time, we're making money off of people's transactions for worship. There's some stories told about those who uh, became highly trained in spotting an unblemished animal and being able to predict what animal would actually become blemished in time. Now, when you get a highly specialized expert like that, you can imagine that it likely led to people being able to control market prices for animals. It's going on in the wrong place. There's probably some extortion, probably some driving up the, profit, uh, the prices to make a profit off of people's worship of God. It's where it's going on. It's how they're doing it. But more than anything, it's really what they're not doing in this place. More than those two things, which are both wrong, it's the overarching truth that zeal for God's name is not taking place in the house of God. They aren't worshiping God. They aren't coming into a holy and reverential encounter with the God of the universe who rescued their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. The most important aspect of the temple is this is where you come to meet with God. This is supposed to be as Sabbath was a time set apart. A certain segment of time set apart. This was supposed to be a place completely set apart in holiness for the worship of God. And as Jesus arrives, there's hustle and bustle business and animals, people being taken advantage of, going on in the holiest place on planet earth. What's so important about the temple? Well, Rick Phillips, a commentary, he helps explain to us what, what the temple was intended for. What's the most important part, of the, important part of the temple? The most important function of the temple, he says, was to house the ark of the covenant, the, that golden box that contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, along with Aaron's staff and a jar of manna, reminders of what God had done, how he had shown their, his faithfulness to his people uh, out in the wilderness and rescuing them out of the land of Egypt. And the most important part of the ark, it was the mercy seat. This was where the blood of the Day of Atonement sacrifice was spread so that sinful humans could dwell in God's presence. This was why 
Israelites came to the temple for Passover. Every family was to sacrifice a lamb for their sins. They came to the temple because that was where the sacrifices were made by the priests and received by God. You come to the temple to have access into the presence of God. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, steps foot into the outer court of the Gentiles. And it's crowded out by animals and trade. Things that are never to be put in the place of God are there. The way in which God commands his people to worship him just is not being observed. The holiest place on earth that is dedicated to the worship of God is defiled. And so Jesus acts and he acts in righteousness. We see the temple gets disinfected. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, at the outset, we need to come to terms with two things from the verses I just read, that we just heard. First, this is Jesus. And secondly, Jesus cares about pure worship. This is Jesus. We're, we're in our culture so accustomed to the kind of sentiments we hear of the God I know would never, X, Y, and Z. The Jesus I believe in, he could never, he would never. But here in Holy Scripture, Jesus, the Son of God, makes a whip of cords and he drives out the sellers of livestock. Have you ever heard the crack of a whip? It's similar to two pieces of leather being pushed together and whoosh. When you hear it, it stops you dead in your tracks. He pours out their money and he flips over the tables. Have you ever heard the clang of coins hitting the ground? I was standing in line at Albertsons this week and somebody had brought just so many coins to dump out at the Coinstar machine. And I was just mesmerized the entire time by it. It's hard not to. We like, we, we've gone so far away from coins and cash these days that it really stops you when you just hear coin after coin clinging and clinging and clinging. Jesus pouring out the coins from the money changers on the floor. And he tells the sellers of the pigeons, get these out of here. My father's house will be called, will not be a house of trade. This is Jesus. And Jesus cares about pure worship. It's not hard to imagine what people might be thinking as they saw Jesus doing this. Jesus, you're going to scare away the big donors by doing this. 
Jesus, you're going you're gonna, to, there might be some people that never come back after seeing what you did. Jesus, you might come off as kind of angry and uh, we hate to say, it, but maybe a little narrow-minded. Do you really have to do it in this way? We don't, we didn't, we agree with maybe what you were doing, but we don't know about the tone. But his disciples, as they reflected on this later, they applied the words of Psalm 69 to him, which David wrote. They said, surely this was more true of Jesus himself, that zeal for God's house would consume him. Jesus is more concerned with true worship of the Father than he is with pleasing the world. And so let's get really practical. Jesus will still, he did and he still does, go after whatever our hearts worship or whatever we worship wrongly in order to rescue us from idols that can never save and to make us true worshipers. What he did back then is still what he does today. Let me ask you some questions. What crowds your heart as you come to worship God on a Sunday morning? What's just present and there as you'd examine it now? Is it frustration? If only my kids were more obedient. Like, I wouldn't be late to church. I wouldn't look bad in front of other people. If only, if only, if only my spouse would just stop doing. If only God would give me. What, what, are, the, what are the questions lying beneath the surface that crowd our hearts that crowd our minds as we come in to worship God on a Sunday morning? What have you brought into the house of worship that doesn't belong here? That in the course of a sermon, when a preacher finally maybe gets a little close to it, you say, oh, he's not talking about me. It's not my thing. It's something else. What are you not willing to part with? How have you made this house a house of trade? If I do this, God will do this. God, if you do this, I'll do that. Is our worship, when we get together, is our worship at a heart level, is it about for and to God? Or is it about the songs that I like, the way the sermon makes me feel, the ideas about God that are appealing to me? Is it the parts of the Bible that I want? Jesus drives out with a whip those things which rob God of his glory. And I know how it sounds. Jesus making a core, making a whip out of cords, driving out those things in holy anger. But I want us to look at what Jesus has just actually done. Because it's maybe not what we think he's done. Jesus, in making the whip of cords, he's actually driven out all the other sacrificial animals. 
there's no sacrifice that remains in this area to buy. There's no money changers. The tables are flipped over. He's gloriously stripped all these people of their ability to purchase their own sacrifice. And the time is drawing near where Christ himself will put an end to all the ways the temple has fallen short because of our own flesh. A cloud of dust went up as Jesus cracked a whip, and what remains is him alone as the sacrifice. And maybe this morning you may feel like God is ruining your life. You wouldn't wouldn't ever state it that way to a friend as they ask you how you're doing, but deep under you say, God, what are you doing? That he's taking away all the things you need when what he is actually doing is he's clearing away all the things you've clung to and he's leaving you with only himself. The process of this can be terrifying. People were probably had a fear of Jesus as he did this. But I think here we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The temple was defiled, so he disinfects the temple. And then the Jewish leader is going to say, what sign do you give us for being able to do this? What's your authority? And Jesus tells them, the temple will be destroyed. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? The Jews, they don't debate, this is interesting, right? They don't debate that what Jesus did was right or wrong. They like accept what he did but they say, give us some proof of why you have the right to do this. Show us a sign. And Jesus cuts through everything else. He looks them square in the eyes and he tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He cuts to the heart of it. It goes over their heads. The Jews in confusion and probably not a little derision they replied to him, it's taken 46 years to build this and you'll raise it up in three days? Remember, the temple is the place they met with God. It's the very presence of God. And they, they've rebuilt this temple after being carried off into exile. And now Jesus has the gall to say he'll be able to rebuild this temple after it's torn down after they tear it down. A temple that took 46 years to rebuild, he'll be able to do it in three days. How's he able to do this? What they don't understand, the writer of the Gospel of John makes us privy to. John 2.21, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus will give himself in self-sacrificial, wrath-absorbing, sin-removing love for sinners. 
for people who crowded out the temple, for people who offered up false worship, for those who say, Jesus says who that you can do this. Jesus is going to lay down his life for them. But we need to ask, why does he speak of this in terms of the temple? And a young, uh, relatively young, biblical theologian who wrote an excellent commentary on the Gospel of John, his name's James Hamilton Jr., he says, he says this. He's a biblical theologian, and so he ties together about seven things that all the Bible has been telling a story, and it all converges upon Jesus and him offering up his life as the temple that is destroyed and rebuilt. Hear what he says. Why in the terms of the temple? Because the crucifixion of Jesus was the climatic visitation of the covenant curses and God's just wrath against sin. You guys remember that God covenanted with the people of Israel. I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. Now follow in the way that I tell you. God made his promises and was going to keep up his end. He said, Israel, now that I've redeemed you, follow me. Do what I command you to do. And that was on their end. And offer true sacrifice to be cleansed and do these things. And if they did this, it would go well with them. And if they did not do it, they would be cursed. But we're left wondering, where's the curse going to come? We're waiting and we're waiting. When are these curses? It's in the cross that God's covenant curses and his just wrath against sin are revealed. Israel's prophets had warned of the visitation of the curses of the covenant. And the ultimate manifestation of those curses was the destruction of the temple of the temple and exile from the land to be followed by a faithful remnant back from exile into the land. Little wonder that the Lamb of God who would bring to pass that prophesied new exodus should expel other sacrificial animals from the temple precincts. Little wonder that the disciples of Jesus would see him resurrected and both believe what he said and the scripture. God kept his promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Who is the new and better Passover lamb accomplishing a new and better exodus after a more devastating destruction of the temple and a more impressive rebuilding of it on the third day in his resurrection? What's this saying? It's saying that Jesus himself takes all the curses of the people of God who have rebelled against him. Jesus himself, that temple building isn't the thing primarily that's going to be destroyed, but the son of God who is the meeting place of humanity and God will be destroyed. But in three days, he will rebuild. And that's what we see in the resurrection. We have a new temple. And I want to ask you, friends, have you come to this temple? There is now no other temple. We go continually in the confession of our own sin. Some of us say, yeah, I've come to the temple. I've been saved. 
This is continually where we go. We come to Jesus, to our high priest, to the Lamb of God, to the one who is our temple, and we receive freely the grace of his forgiveness and his presence. And there isn't another place to go now. Christian who's been a Christian for a year, there's no other place. Ten years, you don't graduate to a new level. We continually come back to the temple of Jesus Christ himself. And if you have not come, if you come in as a Christian but weighed down with sin, this is still the place we go today. We confess our sin to him. We trust in his sacrifice, in the death of his body, in the resurrection of his life. We trust in that for grace and for redemption. This is where we go. Jesus says the temple will be destroyed, but he also says the temple will be delivered. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple's delivered. We see a few things from this. First, we see the cross and the resurrection is the way to be assured of God's love. I love that the sign Jesus gave them isn't something only for them. It wasn't a miracle that happened in that day, something they were able to taste in that moment, something uh, where a person who was lame was raised at that time, though Jesus does that. But the way that we can all be assured of God's love still stands, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So I want to ask you, what do you tell people about? What do you give them to assure them that God loves them? If it's anything but the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, at best, you are only giving them, in the best case, the second best thing you could ever give them. Give them the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. John later on in his letters tells us, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. This also, this also clearly, if you're wondering, how can I know if this is all true? What we see right here is what we see throughout the scriptures, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the stamp, it's the grounds on which we evaluate all the claims of God. If Christ is not risen from the dead, this is all dumb. This is all foolish. It's in vain. And so what you need to figure out is, did Christ really raise from the dead? Because if he didn't raise from the dead, he has some beautiful ideas, but he doesn't have command over my life. If he didn't raise from the dead, then I can be inspired for a moment, but how can I know I'm truly cleansed from my sin and my mistakes? But if he rose from the dead, then there's nothing over which he does not have claim in my life. He is Lord and he is God. It's the resurrection of Christ, which is the evidence that he did all that he said he did. Uh, The cross and the resurrection are our assurance that we are loved. Secondly, the scriptures are to to be believed and to be trusted. I love it that the disciples, looking back on this, they remembered what Jesus said and what was the outcome 
of seeing what Christ did on the cross. They trust the scripture and the word that Christ had spoken. They trusted them together. How do we today know the way to be made right with God? Well, it, Holy Scripture tells us. This is why week by week we give ourselves to hearing the word of God. It's why throughout the week we give ourselves to study, to memorization, to hearing what he has done. The scriptures are to be believed and they're to be trusted. They predicted the uh, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are God's word. They are true. The third thing we see from verse 22 is this. We're to be patient with those whom we minister to. We're to be patient with those to whom we minister. We have the good news, right? We're not talking now, all those poor people who aren't at the level we're at now, we need to be patient with them. No, we have been shown mercy by the Lord Jesus. We are the ones who are false worshipers who would have no truth, have no hope apart from him coming and saving us. But we see, as we read the account of Jesus and we see the disciples reflecting on this, we see that it took a while for them to be able to understand everything that had happened. We have the good news and others definitely need to know, but be encouraged if you're losing heart right now, okay? It took the disciples a while to remember. They were with Jesus himself for three years, And it was only after he finally raises from the dead that they say, oh yeah, I feel like he said something about this when he was with us. So parents, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers, friends, be encouraged that the words you speak are not in vain. Sometimes it takes a while for the seed to go into the ground to be able to see a sprout come up. There's a story of a famous Puritan named John, uh, his name is John Flavel. And he was a fiery preacher of God's word who loved God's people. And he preached week after week. And one man he preached to was a man named Luke Short. And Luke Short, when he was uh, very young, about 15, when he was 15 years old, he heard a John Flavel sermon and he was like, ah, all that nonsense about uh, needing to be made right with God He was in England. He crossed over the Atlantic. He came to America and he was a farmer in New England. And he lived his entire life. And at the age of 100, yes, the age of 100, he was out working as a farmer and he began to reflect upon his life. Now he had had a long, hardy life. And he came to remember when he was a 15-year-old boy hearing a sermon And as as he was approaching the end of his life, he thought, I might come to meet God one day. And what came to remembrance was the sermon that John Flavel preached 85 years later. And he came under the conviction of his own sin. And he said, I need to seek out a way to be made right with God. And he went and heard the gospel at a local church. And he was saved 85 years later. Don't lose heart with those to whom you're ministering. Don't lose heart with those to whom you're speaking the gospel. Don't lose heart when it seems like it's not making any impact on your kids, on your neighbors, on your friends, on your youth kids. It took the disciples a while, and they still stumbled and fell. A lot like many of us in this room, right? 
Be encouraged, don't lose heart. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The way I'd love to end uh, our time is reflecting upon a conversation that a famous preacher named Dick Lucas thought up uh, as he was as he was once preaching. Tim Keller retells this story. It's one of his favorite stories, so now it's one of my favorite stories, and maybe it'll become one of your favorite stories. Uh, But in a sermon Dick Lucas once preached, he recounted an imaginary conversation with uh, between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. So they're talking. One person's a Christian, one person is a pagan. And the neighbor says to her, I hear you're religious. That's great. Religion is a good thing. Where's your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? Actually, we don't have priests that mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. Christ came and he fulfilled the temple. Christ came and he fulfilled all of the sacrificial system. Christ came and he established a new covenant. Put his spirit inside of us by which we can cry out, you are my father. A new covenant by which week after week, until the day he returns, we proclaim his death and his resurrection from the dead. We say, as surely as I taste this bread and I taste this cup, he really gave himself for me and I have received the forgiveness of sins. Church, let's do away with all the things that crowd out our true worship of God. Let's ask him to do whatever it takes to drive out the things we've been looking to that only he can truly provide and satisfy for. And let's worship our God by the temple who is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whom you have richly poured out on us. God, as, we, as we've heard the story of what you did 2,000 years ago, driving out the things that crowded your temple, we ask, do it again in your spiritual church. Do it again in every heart and every life. We ask that we would be those who, who are able to offer true worship because we have been cleansed by your blood. Christ, you're our only hope. You're the only sacrifice in which we trust. So now, Lord, as we come to the table Would we do so with awe and reverence? As we sing songs of the truths of who we are, would we do it with joy and thankfulness? And Lord, would you purify your church as you are pure? 
we be able to get in the presence of the true and holy God and see idols fall down as we do so? Pray this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.